Okay, we have been looking at 2 Peter chapter 2, uh, where false teachers are discussed. Uh, Peter warned of the consequences to come upon false teachers in lieu of God's judgment being upon them. Very serious thing. Uh, we have given some definition to who false teachers are, what they think, how they behave, and we've seen the fact that the church is susceptible. Now, there are false teachers that come and are from outside the church and try to influence you, maybe through the culture, and then there are false teachers who are in the church, and these are in the church. That's who Peter is talking about. Um, now, when it comes to dealing with false teachings, uh, the, the church is responsible. It's responsible with the leaders to protect the church, and then also individuals, uh, Christians, are responsible to be discerning, uh, to know that entertainment does not when it's passed off as Christianity and loads of other things that um, deception enters into when it comes to our faith. Uh, we've seen the problems in our own backyard, and we've seen it in our nation. And one great danger of the proliferation of false teaching being gobbled up by churchgoers um, is a, uh, not just the air in theology, although that can be the case, but it's a kind of culture that justifies any belief uh, as long as there are claims of the supernatural, as long as there is sensationalism, and as long as there are results, you know, bodies, bucks, and buildings. And we think, well, God must be in it because look at all this happening. So when worshipers are far more concerned with obtaining a, a certain feeling or expecting a certain level of entertainment, truth takes a back seat. That's not what leads. What leads is, you know, my feeling of ecstasy, of being part of a service. And then, of course, we categorize that as that's feeling the presence of God, or whatever that means, all right? Um, and so, that's a problem. And when, when, when we have that as what Christians are thinking, uh, then we're just very, very susceptible. Um, it's, it's not funny, but interesting to me how one approach to Christianity can be a total turnoff when it's like contrived and forced, and to others, it's kind of the cat's meow. How is that? Well, I think that has to do with having our senses trained. I mean, I don't think we need Jesus all dolled up, okay? Uh, I don't think we need to see Jesus as some genie in the bottle in order to love him, okay? Uh, I like Jesus without all the makeup and show, right? Uh, we have to have our senses trained. The writer of Hebrews said this, but solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern. We discern what is good. We discern what is evil. Now, Peter has listed three Old Testament examples of those who are given just punishment because of their rebelliousness, their dismissal of God's authority and perpetual. Um, 
perpetrating false teaching. We read of the angels in Genesis 6 who mated with women on the earth and are now in a temporary place called Tartarus, and they await final judgment. We read of the population during Noah's time um, who ignored Noah, and Noah was building the ark, and they just trafficked in ungodliness, all the rest of the population. And then we read of Sodom and Gomorrah that practice unrelenting sensuousness and pride. So that leads us to take a look at our section in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. We looked at the first half last week. We'll finish, finish off the section today. Let's stand and take a look at it. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lusts of defiling passion and despise authority. Would you go before the Lord and ask him to speak to your heart? Heavenly Father, it is easy when we look at the problems in our culture today to maybe be beleaguered, discouraged, and yet you provide an encouraging word here today, and I ask that it would take hold of our hearts. Help us to be discerning. Lord, we're not interested in being prideful and arrogant because we might understand some of the truth. Help us to always operate in grace. Lord, we're not interested in thinking that we have the corner on the market. And yet, we know that you have revealed yourself to us. You have revealed truth to us and how you want us to behave and how, what you want us to think like. May we hold fast to that. We believe your word to be true, so we don't apologize for it. But we approach you humbly, recognizing that we need you and we need your word. I thank you for these, my brothers and sisters, who have had their senses trained. They love your word. They're not impressed by me. They're impressed by Jesus. They're impressed by your truth. And they want to live that out in genuine community. Make that so with us. I thank you for your Holy Spirit that lives in each of us and that gives us the power to put into practice what we're learning today. We pray this all in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. You know, there are some 
movies that are just for entertainment. And then there are some who really delve into deep theological meaning. That's the case of Talladega Nights, the legend of Ricky Bobby. (laughs) Will Ferrell's character played a professional race car driver, got in a wreck, and thinking he's on fire, he runs around the track crying out, help me Jesus, help me Jewish God, help me Allah, help me Tom Cruise. Use your witchcraft on me to get the fire off me. Help me, Oprah Winfrey. (laughs) End quote. (laughs) In other words, when it comes to God, it's best to hedge your bets and get everybody included, right? One God doesn't necessarily exclude all the other gods. So thinks the modern man. Don't limit yourself. This concept has its roots in pantheism, Hinduism, Eastern philosophy, and has largely been adopted in Western culture and even the church. A pluralistic society echoes the sentiment of Mahatma Gandhi, who said, my position is that all great religions are fundamentally equal. Well, that's hogwash. That's deception. And yet, many... Christians think that way. It's false teaching. So you can imagine then how difficult it is for many Christians to think that there is a personal God who judges people. I mean, that's just too much, right? And yet here we have the revelation of God. Peter says in verse 4, for if God did not spare the angels, verse 5, if he did not spare the ancient world, verse 6, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, if he rescued righteous Lot, then verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. I mean, here's a passage that has highlighted the judgment of God. Peter now turns to make a point that the grace of God extends to those in the midst of the mess. It's encouragement. I mean, in Genesis, it was fallen angels, then a wicked generation and sex-crazed, arrogant people in Sodom and Gomorrah. For Peter, it was living in the midst of these false teachers. And for us today, it's contextual to our own surrounding. Societal pressures, you know, you have division, you have postmodern and progressive thinking within churches thought that reimagines truth and reality to be whatever one feels, and this creates a a very strange brew for Christians within the church. I mean, how do you take the revelation of God seriously? And if you do, 
that everybody's going to like that. It's going to rub a lot of people the wrong way. I mean, God is sovereign and powerful to sustain believers, but also bring judgments, particularly upon those who are false teachers. And if you rescued righteous lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over his lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Let's recognize that Lot was rescued. Now, this is a wonderful truth and one that I think all of us can appreciate when we have to deal with the pressures of living in this world. And in Lot's case, he was up against sensual conduct and wickedness of a very weird variety. And seeing all the morality and arrogance, day by day it says, it speaks of a, of a continual pressure that grieved Lot to the point of torment. It speaks of a, an inner torture, a, a wearing out, an oppression that wears on a person, right? I had lunch with a Southern Baptist uh, friend this week uh, who shared with me, and I, since he's a pastor, I know this has to be true, so uh, he shared with me that in Missouri, there are over 200 churches, Southern Baptist churches that don't have pastors. In Mississippi, over 400 Southern Baptist churches don't have pastors. He said the average number of pastors who start their vocation in ministry in their adult life and then end up retiring in ministry of some kind, that is now one out of ten who start in ministry and end up in ministry. Nine out of ten ministers leave vocational ministry. But here's the thing. This passage is not for pastors. I mean, it, it can apply, but it's for all of us. It's the fact that any believer who feels beleaguered and tired of enduring lawless deeds can feel like giving up, right? We've all been there. And really, see, it's not so much that Lot was the object of depression and they were attacking him, but rather it was that he was distressed by what was happening around him, right? Now, all of us have had family members, friends who go south in their faith, and it seems like it affects everybody within the family and their friends who care for them, right? Only here it was like a community. People he knew were immoral and lawless, and it wore on him. He felt hopeless. He felt alone. And Peter certainly has in mind when he talks about hope that there's a future hope of Christ coming back, a return of Christ to re rescue his own. But there's a need for comfort and intervention now. 
Some of you have seen your friends or family members live lives in complete defiance of the Lord. And you ache for the loss of their joy, for the consequences that you know will have to be endured. And this brings a a heaviness or, or grief. I mean, if you didn't love your family and friends, that would not be the case. Yet God is there in the grief. What I want us to look at are four things we see about Lot in this passage that I hope provide some encouragement to all of us as we consider living with what we have to live with, okay? First is that Lot was a recipient of God's grace. There is a description here that describes Lot in this verse that I think is alarming, frankly. He is called righteous Lot. Righteous Lot. Wait, 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 wait. wait. This is the same man who offered up his two daughters to marauding sexual predators? That lot? Yeah. This is the same man that we know later in a drunken stupor slept with the same daughters. I mean, what the heck is going on? Righteous lot. (laughs) I mean, you could say, hey, uh, in that time, the culture didn't value women as they should. True. But that doesn't justify the egregious acts. You may point out the level of Sodom and Gomorrah's, you know, um, sin was so much worse than anywhere else, and it got to them. You don't, don't understand the pressure that Lot was under. Well, maybe you could make that point. But again, I don't think that excuses offering up his daughters, the senselessness of having relations with him, even though if he was tricked. Yet verse 7 calls him righteous Lot, just in case you didn't get the point. Verse 8 calls him a righteous man, and again, him having a righteous soul. So I don't think it's a misprint. Listen, Lot was not rescued because of his merit. Okay? All of this was God's doing in him. He was rescued because God chose him. Lot believed God. When Paul was discussing his discipleship, he said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Now, wait a minute. You might say, well, listen, Paul was really smart. I mean, you know. He was a Pharisee. He was highly educated. I mean, the guy was probably a good order. So God used it. No, no, you don't get the point. No. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. It's a way of saying I was saved by grace. 
I live by grace, and anything I achieve is by grace. The only reason that Lot is called righteous is because of God's goodwill toward him and toward us. Lot was a recipient of God's grace and therefore was called righteous. Many within Christendom don't understand grace. Christians don't understand grace by and large. If I get criticized with any of my preaching, it's because of this. Way too much grace. You get it wrong. You, you, you got to throw in a little legalism. You got to throw in a little lordship salvation to keep people in check. If you can't do that, at least threaten people to lose their salvation. Because if you don't, if you preach grace like the Bible presents it, people are going to take advantage of that. You're given an okay of sin. You've got to have a little bit of control. Anybody know pastors who like to have a little control? Tell people how to act, what to do. Lot would not have been a good example of the American Christian because he made grievous mistakes as a parent. And yet, God calls him righteous. Let me remind you, Rahab was not a good Christian girl, but God put her in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. The fact is, if we represent grace the way the Bible depicts it, we're going to be misunderstood. Fact. Okay? Because we're not towing the line. You're allowing for sin. But one thing's for sure, in our flesh, all of us humans like to take credit for something God has done. Grace says God has done it and continues to sustain us. It's his work. Most evangelicals, without knowing what Peter said here, most evangelicals would not call Lot righteous. I mean, we want to get our grubby little hands on grace. We want to draw our lines because we don't trust it. We know people are going to take advantage of it. I mean, with most, most Christians, grace ends with an extreme immoral act. With humans, grace has to have a stopping point. But God's grace extends way beyond the human experience. Nobody ever said grace is an excuse for sin. At least, not in this church. Because it's not. It's the great, great news that God covers all sin. And it becomes the best foundation for holiness. Not legalism, 
not lordship salvation, not threatening people they're going to lose their salvation. Grace is the best foundation for living the Christian life. It's not out of obligation. But we best obey God when we understand his incredible disposition toward us while we've sinned. And when you love God, the last thing you want to do is take advantage of that. I want to dedicate myself to him in honor and respect. You know, if I had you raise your hand today, and I don't need you to do it because I know the answer to this. How many of you have had a turnaround in your marriage from a troubled marriage because your spouse enunciated for you the hundredth time in great detail all of your failings? Mm, Thank you, honey, for telling me now. Again, this so helps me. No marriage was fixed because of legalism, reminding people of just their obligations, their fault, or threatening them. Yet that is exactly the culture of many of our Christian communities. It's really not hard to understand. If God's grace extends to Lot, doesn't it also extend to us as well? So that now I can love him in the freedom and security of him loving me. I can give him my best with my best motivation because I want to please him. Right? See, if you love your spouse, if something is wrong, well, you want to fix that because you want what's best for your spouse. Love is the best motivator. And so grace and forgiveness have to be a part of the equation. Next, love was generally, or Lot was generally distressed over sin in his midst. Now, Lot was different from the rest of Sodom. Peter informs us that Lot was burdened by living in Sodom, that the ungodly conduct of his fellow citizens, they took a toll on him. I mean, the two angels came to Lot, and he persuaded them to stay with him, but the house was surrounded by men of Sodom, demanding their use of Lot's visitors for their unnatural lust. They tried to beat down the door to get to them. And because of this unnatural, raging lust, the doom of the cities was sealed. And Lot was greatly distressed. His soul was tormented. It's the idea of an unbearable pain as a result of this anguish over sin. Now, that can be over your own sin or over the sin of others. 
And I think God could see this in Lot. In Psalm 38, 18, David said, For I confess my iniquity, I am full of anxiety because of my sin. When Paul thought of the lost in Israel, he said, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. There's a, there's a distress we feel when we consider the lostness and the fate of those around us. I think such a distress is a sign of God's spirit resonating in our hearts. It's out of love for those who reject him. So we could look at it this way. Your mourning over sin is not unusual. It's just a fact of living in this world. Just the way it is. But God will rescue us. Next we see that Lot could rely upon God as the generator of justice. Verses 9 and 10 say, And to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Peter is demonstrating the objective nature of the rebelliousness against God. And he's using the angels in Noah's day as an example. They indulge in lust of defiling passion. That means a, a, a kind of sin that brings discredit and it brings shame. And of course, we know that God is going to keep them in kind of a holding pattern, greatly limiting their influence while they wait in Tartarus. It's a temporary place until final judgment. Then in verse 7, when speaking in Lot's day, he speaks of sexual conduct of the wicked. Lot could see and hear of their lawless deeds. Now listen, I think one is able to, to feel powerless when you witness this rampant evil. I know I do. My heart grieves as I think of not only society, but Christians who get sucked in to these deceptive ways of thinking. And sometimes you may feel like you're on the losing side. You may feel like there's nowhere to go. How can this be stopped? And when James was talking about the injustice done to people in the church who were favoring the rich, James instructed the Christians to be patient and that the Lord would execute his justice. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. I mean, the farmer realizes that there are factors beyond his control. No farmer has control of the weather. Too much rain can cause the crop to rot. Too much sun, it can burn up. An early frost can kill the crop. And the farmer recognizes that the fruit is not dependent simply on his hard work, 
but on forces outside of himself. And the patient believer recognizes that the fruit we anticipate is dependent upon the intervention of God in human affairs. And much of this is beyond our control. These truths are to strengthen our resolve, to encourage us to be firm in the face of suffering. When our hearts ache, we have to remember the reality of the coming king and that justice will eventually be delivered. Yeah, there is approximate justice that we can have. Thank God that we have court systems. Not, they don't always get it right, but like I said, it's an approximate justice. But I think what Peter's trying to say is we do not have to carry the weight of riding the scales. I see so much evil in the world, and I know God will right the scales. He'll execute his justice. That's beyond my control. Next, Lot could rely upon God for present strength. When we read that Lot was distressed, that he was tormented, it reminds us that we are weak. Lot knew that. We feel anguish in circumstances that outpace our natural supply. Lot knew he was way over his head. Out of his weakness, Lot could find strength. Unfortunately, much of the Western church equates God's presence and power in triumphalism, in sensationalism. Now remember, Paul is writing to churches about false teaching. And the reason I bring this up is because I think false teaching can thrive in a church culture of triumphalism and cessationalism. You know, when Paul was writing to the Corinthians about false teachers, the false teachers were bragging about their exploits. They were making fun of Paul because he didn't have, you know, the right gravitas. He didn't have the right stuff. And Paul turns it on his head when he says this. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly on my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, in Western church culture, we think the glory of God rests upon the one who is portraying particular gifts or upon people who are healed. We are prone to equate power with sensational platform impressions. And Paul says, the glory of God rests upon the afflicted. Certainly, 
He doesn't understand how we can gain all the entrepreneurs and the powerful if we just, you know, give them the right stuff. Paul says the glory of God rests upon the afflicted. Instead of healing Paul, listen to this, God leaves the thorn. God's power is shown in extravagant ways when we live with our thorns. It is here humility can best be realized. In God's economy, all right, this next statement is not going to gain any church members. But in God's economy, it is better for us to be in pain than to be conceited. Thus, the thorns. Power is not the way. Weakness is the way. And it is there the glory of Christ is best seen. The psalmist said, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. The Lord delighted in encouraging the heart of Lot, and he does the same with us. You know, we have a family member who has struggled with infertility for years. They've been denied 14 times in adopting a child as they present their case to mothers. 14 no's. And each denial is a reminder of their weakness. And at first, it can be a cause for anger and grief and bitterness. And sometimes our reactions to pain exasperates it, right? But God wants to strengthen our hearts. The psalmist lets us know that with the grace of Christ and safety and time, there is healing. He says, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadows of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. God's mercy is available if we realize the safety that's enjoyed, not by getting what we want, but by his presence. It's not found in getting every circumstance to our liking. In seeing every trial, you know, conquered, we escape from it. Every sickness healed. But in Christ, there is safety. Great if it is. But for all the touting of the healings, how many are in the congregation that have never been healed? The ratio is far greater for those who have never received the new job, never got the money. Never been healed. What then? Are we just going to say they don't have faith? Please don't. Notice 
with patience. God will allow the storms to pass by. Most of the time, God does not stop the storm. Most of the time. He can. Sometimes he does. That's great. But he strengthens and comforts as we go through it. See, God is more concerned with the status of my heart and finding my hope in him than getting a child, getting the job, getting healed, just fill in the blank. See, when the presence of God comforts us, the power of the storm dissipates. Again, he can choose to do whatever he wants. All right? And he's certainly able. And I wouldn't tell you to stop asking. Because at least in our prayers, we're going to him. And sometimes he'll say yes. All right? But I don't want a culture in which we're up on the stage just extolling the victories and the healings. I'd like to read the prayer cards from the stage of the person who was not healed and still loving God. We should read the prayer card of those who didn't get the change in relationship and they're still being faithful to God. We could read the prayer card of the person who lost their job and in their distress, they find comfort under the shadow of his wings. I can read of the victories, nothing wrong with that. But how about for the other 98%? John Piper said, if you alter or obscure the biblical portrait of God in order to attract converts, you don't get converts to God, you get converts to an illusion. That is not evangelism, but deception. End quote. See, I don't want to deceive you in what God wants to do with us. And as we look at the biblical record, and I look at the the trials and the travail, it's like, that is a part of life. And I look at Paul, who had a thorn, and he prayed and prayed and prayed, and God said, no, you, you know, you're going to have this. Isn't that what most of us live with? Right? But that doesn't leave us hopeless. That's not to say God doesn't care. That's not to say that God enjoys our pain. That's to say that God is there in the pain. And that God uses that to mold us, to humble us, to see our need of him daily, moment by moment. Let's pray.